Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Now that we've entered a brave new world in big time college athletics, when the money from the NIL revolution is fundamentally altering the system's business model, it has become fashionable to ridicule the athletic scholarship. But the athletic scholarship has done more to lift people out of modest circumstances than any social program ever invented. You may know someone who leveraged his or her athletic ability to earn a college education that became the springboard to a good life. Someone like Flora Hyacinth. Hyacinth grew up poor on the Caribbean island of St. Lucia, but as a teenager discovered she was a gifted track athlete. In those days, she learned that her talent was a kind of currency. Flora attracted the attention of college recruiters from the United States and wound up at the University of Alabama. While earning a college degree, she became a championship athlete, specializing in the triple jump and the long jump, and eventually competed in the Olympics. And there's a good twist in this story that eventually propelled Hyacinth to become a successful chiropractor in San Diego. Join me for an American Achievers conversation with a proud immigrant who understands how precious freedom and opportunity can be. So we're in the San Diego office of Dr. Flora Hyacinth, and you've just been talking about playing beach volleyball this yeah, weekend. Yeah, <laughs> that was a lot of fun, actually. Why do you keep competing? You know what? I think once a competitor, always a competitor. Um, I can't do track and field the way I'd like to anymore. I mean, I'm 53 years old, even though my heart and my mind tells me I can do it, my body tells me otherwise. And so I try to find other sports that uh, that can entertain me. And beach volleyball is a lot of fun. You grew up in a fishing village. I did. In St. Lucia. In St. Lucia, yeah. What did you dream about? You know, I don't know that I knew what my dreams were. I just knew that I wanted more than what I saw growing up in St. Lucia. If you didn't come from money, the opportunities were very, very limited, which meant that 
by the age of 15 or 16, you were done with school and then you were looking for a job. And I just knew I wanted more than that. Tell me a little bit more about your, your family. You came from a big family. My mom had 11 kids. And out of that bunch, there were three sets of twins. I never knew exactly what it was that I was going to do. I just was, I was always a dreamer. I just, I remember as a little girl, just sitting back and thinking about all the possibilities. I knew that I loved track, um, but I never envisioned that track would propel me into this career that I'm in right now, which is chiropractic. But yeah, I just, I... I always, I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. Getting the opportunity to leave the islands and possibly go off to college was more of a dream than, than it was something that you could make a reality of out of. So when track and field came about and I had the opportunity to go to college, absolutely, you take it. But even then, I didn't know, you know what that meant. All I knew was I wanted to go to college and get a degree. And at 16, you somehow got to St. Croix. I did. Just before, three months before my 17th birthday, I was lucky enough, blessed enough uh, to get our papers, move to St. Croix. My mom had lived there for a while and been trying to get us our papers. And I moved in December of 82 to St. Croix and started high school late, actually, in September of that year of 83. And the rest is history. And you had a little trouble getting through high school in terms of getting into school, right? Yeah. So when I first got to St. Croix, I was considered too old to get into the public school. And there was only one public high school at the time. And of course, we didn't have the money to send me to a private school. And quite by accident, I met up with a high school, with the high school coach, who um, high school track coach, that is, and told him my story. And he was able to get me a scholarship to the 70 Adventist School. And that was in 1984. So September of 1984, I started high school. I was 18 at the time. And I actually started in the 11th grade. And I started to run track at that time as well. Got because there really was no organized track on St. Lucia, right? There was no organized track and field in St. Lucia. Thankfully, there was a little bit more organization in the Virgin Islands. They started uh, in 1968, I think, was the first year they got to compete at the Olympic Games representing the Virgin Islands. Prior to that, they were representing the U.S., and uh, like I said, I was lucky enough to meet with that coach, got me into the 70 Adventist High School in September of 1984, and I ended up graduating the following year, just right after my 19th birthday, and ended up at the University of Alabama. Well, let's back up a little bit, because yeah. there's a little bit more to the story here. a little here. bit more to the story, yeah. So tell me the whole story about how you had to, you had to fight to, one, get into high school. You were in night school at one point. I was. Wow. You you know my history well. So when I got to St. Croix, like I said, I was too old to get into the public high school. Oh, that's what I was told because I was almost 17. So my mom got me into night school and I started out in the ninth grade in night school. Were you the youngest person in night school? I probably was. I probably was because I was 17. And then that's I met the high school coach quite by accident. Um, at the time, we were, I was 70 Adventists, and we went to 70 Adventist Church. And my church had this annual family fun day, which was on April 1st. And I started to compete against some of the athletes um, from the high school. And I guess I was good enough where I either finished first or second. So the high school coach sent someone to get me because he wanted to know who's this girl beating up on his other athletes who've been training all this time. I told him my story, and he says, let me see what I can do. 
and he reached out to a friend of his who was a fellow track and field athlete going to the Seventh Adventist Church, and he goes, hey, this is what's going on with this young lady. What can you do to help? And he says, let me see what I can do. He reached out to the church, and they offered me a scholarship. They paid my my way to go to, to the Seventh Adventist Church, I mean, to go to Seventh Adventist School. And that scholarship really put you on the road to becoming a successful athlete. It really did. It really did because once I was able to get into the school, although they put me into the 11th grade, um, I started running track. So let me let me see if I remember the story correctly. So I started track in 1984, and that was around April of 1984. So I started school in September of 1984 in the 11th grade. And so January comes along of 1985, and I'm competing, and I'm doing well, and I'm being recruited, but I'm in the 11th grade. And once they got my transcripts from St. Lucia and they realized that I had more than enough credits to graduate, then I was able to graduate with uh, the 12th grade class. And I was 19. And I got to compete. And um, at the Florida Relays was where I guess I showcased my talent. And that's where a lot of schools started to recruit me. And I chose University of Alabama. And I chose Alabama because at the time, Lily Leatherwood, who was an Olympic gold medalist, was still competing for the school. And it's kind of a, a big deal for a high school kid to end up at a school where an Olympian is. And so that's part of the reason why I chose University of Alabama. And growing up in the islands, did you really have any athletes that you admired? No, no, because, I mean, television was limited, so we really didn't have much exposure to the athletes who were out there, at least not in St. Lucia. You got to St. Croix, and things were a little bit more Americanized because it's American territory. But even then, I didn't know who the athletes were. When Alabama started to recruit me and told me about Lily Leatherwood and Emmett, uh, Emmett King, Emmett Smith, no, Emmett oh. King, and Calvin Smith, all these people had gone to Alabama. and had Calvin been, Smith held the world record yes, in the 100 meters. Yes, he did. He had the world record in the, in the 100 meters for a while, and the coaches started to recruit me, and I thought, wow, I think I, I like that school. So, yeah, and that's kind of how I ended up at, at Alabama. Was that kind of culture shock? It really was. I remember, you know, getting in someone's car and driving on the freeway and looking at all the different freeways and thinking, how did they get from here to there? Yeah, that, it was a big culture shock for me. Yeah. I mean, I come from a place where there's just, you know, one road. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit americanachievers.us and click on the premium membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program.
How did you first become aware of the triple jump? It wasn't until I got to Alabama. I had never heard of the triple jump before, didn't know that that event existed. I had, I had long jumped and I had hurdled and, of course, done the sprints. And so I get to Alabama and I saw some of my teammates practicing the triple jump. I asked about it and they told me what it was. But it never occurred to me that I was ever going to triple jump. And so freshman year, conference outdoors, we're at a team meeting and the coaches are calling each athlete's names and telling us what events we're going to be participating in. And when it comes to me, I heard Flora Hyacinth, long jump, 100 hurdles, 400 hurdles, 4x1, four 4x4, four four, and then I heard triple jump. And everyone looked at me. I looked at the coach, and he goes, don't worry about it. We just need you for some points. He goes, one of the grad assistants will take you out, and he'll just basically show you the basic stuff that we need, you need to do. And, and for anybody who's not acquainted with track and field, it's not exactly an easy event. <laughs> well, um, I think a lot of it for me was that I was so new to track and field. At that time, I had, it had only been one year. I started track in 1984, and I got to Alabama in 1985. So I was a late starter in terms of organized track and field. And so they could have put me in the 10,000, and I probably would have been okay with that. Keep listening, because this has a really cool ending. <laughs> well, so... Anyway, the grad assistant, he takes me out and he goes, Flora, all we need you to do is, and it was, he, he started, he goes, we're going to do a short approach. I think it might've been an eight step approach. He goes, just run to the board, whatever foot hits the board, just take off, do this, do a hop, a skip and land. Well, I ended up jumping 42. I don't remember exactly what the number was. might've been 42, seven, 42 feet, seven inches and qualified for the national championships. And I think I finished second. I don't think I won the, the triple jump. Well, as a result of that, I ended up winning the commissioner's trophy because I scored the most points, and I did that as a freshman. May 17, 1987. May 17, 1987. Exactly one year later was when I broke the world record in the triple jump. I happened to be, I was a sports writer at Alabama in college at that point, and I happened to, you and I are about the same age, and I happened to be there that day. And I remember distinctly my lead. It was for a few precious moments yesterday. Flora Hyacinth had the world at her feet. But there is a, an irony there. Tell me about that story. So apparently we didn't have a steel tape. And in order for anything to be rectified, and uh, I mean ratified, and be considered a war record, it has to be measured with a steel tape. Any of the field events, whether it's a long jump, triple jump, you know, um, the, any of the throws, it has to be measured with a steel tape. And either they didn't have one or the officials it weren't aware of it, and so they raked the pit. And right after they raked the pit was when they realized that it should have measured it with a steel tape. So um, it was never considered a war record, but just a war lead-in jump. So we'll talk about the disappointment of that in a moment. But the accomplishment of that, how did that impact the way you saw yourself? You know, honestly, Keith, for me, and I, you and I have had that conversation before, I was so new to track and field. And it's not that I thought that it wasn't a big deal. I really honestly didn't think much of it. Because I remember calling my coach, my high school coach, and telling him, hey, uh, coach, I, I think I just broke the world record in the triple jump. And he goes, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, yeah. Um, and I remember calling my mom, and my mom was like, what's that? And I think it was kind of the same for me. I, And I think maybe I thought at that time that everybody – broke war records. I don't know. I didn't really think much of it until much later. But it had to have disappointed you that you, that what happened? 
Again, I don't think it did at that time. I think it was later on in my life, in my career, when I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I was the first woman to triple jump over 45 feet, but that world record was never next to my name, just a world lead in jump. So I think it was later on in life and in years that I recognized the significance of what I had done and the significance of what had happened with it not being measured by that steel tape. A couple of years later, you uh, you get out of Alabama and you move back to the islands. I moved back to the Virgin Islands right after graduation. I thought my career was over. I I think at that time I was burnt out. Like I said, because I was so new to track and feel that anything they asked me to do at Alabama, I did it. And by the time I graduated, I was burnt out. So I moved back to the Virgin Islands, hung up my shoes and thought I was done. And the Track and Field Federation in the Virgin Islands reached out to me and they said, listen, we need an athlete to represent us at the World Indoor Championships in Seville. I think it was in 91. And I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm retired. But they convinced me, which I think. And by the way, you had a good job at that point. I did. I did. I was teaching at the time and I loved it. I loved the kids. I was teaching French. And um, so they convinced me and I went ahead and I competed for them. Didn't do well, but it was probably the best decision I made because it kind of propelled me into the next phase of my my career, which was my professional career. You had a good job teaching French. You enjoyed it. But pretty soon you made the decision to move back to the States. I did because the opportunities were not there in the Virgin Islands. We didn't have a good track. Uh, we still, we had the asphalt track or dirt track. And, you know, at that point in my career, I needed to stay healthy. And plus we needed the competition. Competitions are very, very limited in, in the islands, in the Virgin Islands, that is. And so I thought if I move back to the States. So what I did was I moved back. Just It was supposed to be temporary. moved back in January of, two, of 1992 to train for the uh, 92 Olympics, and I trained with Dan Paff over at LSU. And I made the finals at the Olympics, and I thought, wow, maybe I'm on to something. And so I moved back to the Virgin Islands, you know, gave them, you know, my resignation, packed up my life, and moved back to the States. Did you understand what a defining moment that was in terms of chasing your dream? I don't know that I necessarily r- realized that it was a defining moment. I just knew that I wanted more. And it was that that more that I always envisioned as a child in St. Lucia. I knew that as much as I loved teaching, as much as I loved the kids, I knew that there was more for me to do in terms of athletics. That hunger, it was like that hunger that I felt in 1984, 1985, 1986 came back. And I thought, if I, I had to do it, I... I I had to give up my life in the Virgin Islands and move back to the States and pursue it. Otherwise, I would have had regrets. And I don't believe in having regrets. Where does that hunger come from? You know, I think a lot of it has to do probably with my upbringing, growing up in a fishing village, like you mentioned earlier, where, you know, there was a lot of poverty. Um, The jobs were scarce. You either ended up working some job with the government, some low-level job with the government, or working in a hotel industry. And nothing wrong with those jobs. I just knew I wanted more. I just knew I wanted more. What did that decision to chase your dream, what did it say about you? That I'm, a, that I'm an overachiever? <laughs> no, it just says that I'm goal-oriented. I'm very, very goal-oriented. And I'm one of these people, I like to set goals for myself, and I don't like to just... I, I, I'm disappointed if I don't, if I am not able to achieve those goals. 
So I'm, I'm very good at setting goals and doing everything that I can to make sure that I make those dreams a reality or make those goals a reality. What is it you feel when you compete? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. That uh, feeling of, it's more than just joy. It's that feeling of just being in control that there's that love that I have for, for competing, whether it's track and field or anything. There's that love that I have. I It's indescribable, really. Like, for me in track and field, for example, it's like being on that runway and knowing that I controlled what happened from the, my very first step till I landed in that pit. I was in control of that. I love it. What was going through your mind on a typical day when you're on the runway? And what are you thinking about? You think about the different phases. So for me, there were three phases. The drive phase, you know, the phase in between, and then the last six steps uh, and, and my takeoff. You just, you know, you, you literally, literally put everything else out and then just concentrate on what's happening down that runway. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. So in November of 1995, I had a major ankle injury. I had what is called an inversion, eversion sprain. And it was happened kind of, I was doing drills. So it wasn't, it didn't happen while I was jumping, just I was doing drills. And um, I remember going to an ortho and he goes, it's your takeoff leg, your career is over. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not ready. It's like that love for track and field, I, it was renewed. And so I wasn't ready to give up on track and field. So I went for a second and a third opinion and all three authors told me, oh yeah, your career is over. And I had an appointment with my chiropractor. So I kept that appointment, went in to see him on crutches. He asked me what happened and I told him and I told him what the doctors had said. And he goes, Psh, don't worry about it. This was in August of, no, I'm sorry. This was November of 95. And this guy, this chiropractor got me on, on a regimen to get me back to where I needed to be. And I was competing at the 96 Olympics less than a year later. Uh, and I finished 12. So. And of course, you had a very disappointing not making the finals. Yes. So, yeah. So the rules changed in 1996. Prior to 96, so 12 people advanced to the finals. 12 people always advanced to the finals. And if the 12th and 13th person had the same jump, then you would advance to the finals as well. The 13th person would advance to the finals as well. What happened with me was I fouled my first two jumps. And on my last jump, I tied for 12th place. But because of the rule change, I did not advance uh, because they, only, they took the top 12. Later on, one of the girls tested positive, and so I finished 12. But I ended up not competing at the uh, at the 96 Olympic finals. And in the papers the next day, it said something about Flora Hyacinth had the longest. It was the first time anyone had jumped as far as I had jumped and actually not make the Olympic finals. So that, that, that was heart-wrenching for me. And yet you had this incredible comeback from where you were in the fall of 95 to make the Olympic yeah. Games in 96 in Atlanta. So do you consider that a success or a failure? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I consider it a success because I was able to make it to Atlanta. Um, not making the 
not being able to compete at the actual finals still was a big disappointment for me. Because, I mean, nobody, nobody trains to finish 12, right? We all want to at least be on the podium, whether it's first, second, or third. But if you can't do that, it'd be nice to be in the finals. And so not being able to make the finals was very disappointing for me. How long did it take you to let go of that? I still haven't. I don't think I have. I still talk about it on social media. Every every Olympic cycle. Is that healthy? No, no. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. But, you know, I guess I've let go enough to allow me to, to pursue other dreams. Like I train for American Ninja Warrior now or, you know, learning to play beach volleyball. So, yeah. And that injury led you in a, in a circuitous kind of route to your career as a chiropractor. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Dr. Dave Corbin, who was my chiropractor in, um, in Baton Rouge at the time, I, the fact that he, he looked at me when I told him what the other, the orthopedic doctors had said to me, and he looked at me and he goes, don't worry, we'll get you back. The fact that he did not give up on me, I wanted to be that person for my patients. I wanted to be able to look at a patient and say, you know, we're going to do everything we can rather than say to them, you know what, I'm sorry, but your career's over or you'll never be able to do this again. I wanted to be able to look at my patients and say, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you can do those things that you enjoy again. You could say that 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 was kind of the fulcrum of your life. That was a defining moment in the sense that that injury led you to the next stage of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with that. Yeah. What was the hardest part of, of becoming a chiropractor? The schooling. My undergrad is in linguistics, so I have absolutely no science background. And when I applied to chiropractic school and they received my transcripts from um, University of Alabama, I had none of the prerequisites, the science prerequisites. So I needed 41 hours of chemistry and biochemistry and physics and you know all those different sciences. So that was the hardest part. Um, but again, maybe it's because I'm an overachiever. I, I, I don't believe in failure. And I was determined that I was going to get through that program. So I lived with a medical dictionary. I mean, the, I, I saw words I'd never even seen before. I remember the, re the first really big word I saw was anastomosis. And I thought, anasta what? So my sister-in-law was in the medical field. I went and borrowed her a medical dictionary that I kept with me the entire three and a half years of chiropractic school. And yeah, if I didn't know what, I looked it up. And I actually ended up graduating cum laude. Told you, I'm an overachiever. <laughs> Why do you think so many athletes struggle with making that transition to later life? I think they don't have a plan B. I knew that I wanted to be a chiropractor from when I met Dr. Corbin, for sure. But when I moved to the Virgin Islands, when I moved back to the Virgin Islands in, uh, after graduation, I met with the, the chiropractor who was there, and he asked me, what are your plans? And initially, the plan was to take a year off and then go back to law school. And, um, and I told him that, and he goes, have you ever thought about chiropractic school? And I said, well, I have, but, you know, I, I remember telling him that I don't get along with sciences. And he goes, you'll be fine. And so I knew it was always in the back of my head that that was going to be the next step for me. I just didn't know how I was going to go about doing it, but I, I knew. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing to answer your question. I think the athletes don't have a plan B. Yeah. What's the most rewarding part of your job now? 
you know, you hate to see anyone in pain, but unfortunately, I'm in a line of work where people come to you in pain. And the most gratifying part of it is watching a patient come in with, you know, whatever level of pain and having them walk out and say, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. And I also take great pride in my staff. I have an incredible staff. And when patients tell me how great my staff is, that, that you know, that says it all for me. And you keep competing. And you, as you mentioned, you've been on American Ninja Warriors. What was that like? It was, it was a lot of fun. But I'll tell you this. I remember one of the questions they asked was, do you get nervous competing in front of large crowds? And I said, no, because I'm thinking I, I've competed at, at the Olympic Games, right? Well, I have, I have to tell you, it's totally different. Even though, uh, you know, the audience is really, really small with American Ninja Warrior, the difference with, say, track and field, with track and field, there are so many different events going on at one time that you know not all eyes are on you. At American Ninja Warrior, all the cameras, all eyes are on you. So I remember getting on, to, on that stage once the uh, buzzer goes off and you step on the stage and I looked out and I saw all these eyes and I saw all these cameras and I panicked for a second. And then I got into competition mode and I was like, yeah, I'm good. So, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah. No, so I've only actually competed in it once and that was three years ago. The following year, I had, I ended up with two herniated discs, you know, training for American Ninja. I fell and ended up with two herniated discs. So I didn't, I obviously couldn't compete and it took a year and a half for me to be able to not have any symptoms uh, of that. And I did get the call to compete this past season. Unfortunately, had some stuff going on with family and work and wasn't able to do it. So I'm hoping that things calm down. I'm training for, for next season, so I'm hoping that things calm down in my life that will allow me to actually compete. You know, some people would say you're a little crazy to keep competing. Probably. At our age. I'm not one of them, by the way. Why do you keep competing? Why not? Why not? You know, yesterday I went out and played beach volleyball, and there was a 76-year-old gentleman there playing like a 30-year-old. And I think it's about continuity. The minute we stop doing these things, then I think that change, changes our lives. I think if you continue to do the things that you enjoy, it keeps you young at heart. Yeah. And you're also talking about, as an overachiever, that this works into that. What is it about achievement across various disciplines that gives you a sense of validation? You know, I, I do it really for me. I don't think I do it for any validation or anything like that. It's just, I get bored easily. And so I just have to figure out, okay, what's this next, what's the next thing that I can do to keep my mind occupied, to keep me challenging myself? And so with American Ninja Warrior, it really is about me challenging myself. And yeah, I want to compete against people half my age. And I want to whoop some butts, you know? It's like even with track and field, I try to compete at least once a year in track and field. Whether I, I don't train for it, but I jump in in March over at Aztecs Invitational at San Diego State because it's my birthday month. And I know I'm not going to win but I also know that I'm, I could beat about half of the people there, and these kids are half my age. So maybe it's maybe it's an ego thing. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm having fun, right? Do you ever think back, if you had not walked away from the teaching job, what your life would be like? I think about it all the time. Do you miss the teaching? I do not. 
I do not. I miss the kids. I do miss, you know, the interaction with the kids. I don't miss the teaching. And I, I do think about that a lot and think how different my life would have been. And I know that I would have had regrets. I don't believe in regrets. And I believe in, and that's why I trained for like American Ninja and stuff like that. I may never hit, uh, run up that wall, but that's my goal. I said, I want to hit that wall. I want to run up that wall and, and hit that buzzer. So it's all about setting goals for myself and um, just trying to achieve them as much as I can. What would you say to the to young people today who don't see opportunity? You got to make it. You got you to see it. It's there. You know, even when, like when I moved to St. Croix and I started out in night school, it would have taken me, because we started in ninth grade, we had 9, 10, 11, 12, so we're talking four years, probably would have went off to college at 22 or 23, but it was still doable. Um, the opportunities are there. You just have to, you just have to see it yeah, and you have to make it happen. What was the, the, the biggest failure of your life and what did you learn from it? The biggest failure of my life, oh, wow, that's that's a big one. I don't know that I would consider my life or anything that I've done as a failure, honestly, because everything that I have done has led to where I am right now, and I'm a big believer in things happening the way they were meant to happen, um, and I'm a product of yesterday. I'm a product of my past, so I don't I don't think that I do. Even, you know, what happened at the 96 Olympics, not making the finals on a technicality or the world record, I don't see it as, as a failure. Yeah. For the little girl who grew up in St. Lucia and moved to the Virgin Islands, what does the American dream mean? Oh, my gosh, everything. I wouldn't be the person I am today if I had never left St. Lucia. You know, had I stayed in St. Lucia, like it's my friends who never left, they're all either working low-level jobs in the government or working in the hotel industry. And again, nothing wrong with that. Somebody has to do it, but I wanted more for me. So yeah, the American dream is, I'm living the American dream. Thanks to Elaine McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.